Joshua. Uh, what a wonderful character he is. What a wonderful book. Let's just think uh, about why the Israelites are going into um, Canaan. So let's just have a, have a think about this, put everything into context, because I think that's really important. So we know, don't we, the Israelites were in Egypt. They were there because uh, God took them there with Joseph and because of the famine. And they then became slaves in Egypt. And God promised that he would bring them out of Egypt. And we see there a picture, don't we, of the wilderness journey, how they left Egypt. Uh, this is just one interpretation of where they went. Um, and he brought them then all the way up here, uh, eventually up to the borders of the promised land and God had promised them that land because of the promise he gave to Abraham and then uh, here when they're on the borders of the Jordan here uh, we see then that Joshua then goes into the land he crosses over the Jordan here which we'll have a look at and then he has a battle strategy and his battle strategy is that of divide and conquer the land. So first of all, he goes through the middle of the land here and he fights with these armies around the center. Then he goes down to the south and defeats the enemies in the south. And then eventually he goes up to the north uh, and completes the job uh, and he manages with uh, the strength of God in order to take the land of Israel. What's interesting though, and what I didn't realize until maybe a year or two ago, is that actually Joshua didn't take all of the land. What he actually did is he took the bits of the land that God gave to him. And there's a big difference there. And we have to bear that in mind, okay? And we'll come to the reason for that. But if you look at this map here, the pink bits or the red bits or however it shows on your screen are the bits of land which Joshua conquered, okay, while he was living. But you can see there, there's lots of green bits here that were never taken by Joshua. And again, I think there is a good reason for that. So let's just stop sharing that for now and let's have a look then. Why did God give the Israelites the land of Canaan to possess? Was it because they deserved it? No, they didn't deserve it at all, because even though they were God's people, it doesn't make them anything special uh, with regards to how good they were. They were still sinful, and it shows us that when they were on the banks of Getting close to the banks of Jordan, there was an incident at Baal Peor where they committed iniquity uh, and a lot of people died. So they weren't a good nation. Um, did, they, um, did, did they conquer it in their own might? No, they didn't. They had to rely heavily on God. So why were they going into the land of Canaan? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 15, and you don't need to turn there, but if you want to turn there, Genesis 15 and verse 16, God promises it to Abraham when he tells them, Abraham, that the people are going to go into Egypt. He also says in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, that's an unusual phrase. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So God is referring to the people in the land in that they were uh, an ungodly, they were an evil uh, group of people in the land. And therefore, God needed to do something about it. So this was as much as God wanting to um, um, serve judgment on the people that lived in the land as much as it was that he wanted to put his people into the land. And sometimes we have to have the mercy and the judgment of God together, don't we? Sometimes in order for God to be able to show mercy and blessings, on the other hand of that comes judgment. Just like when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, what we're asking for is God to give us an inheritance. But what we don't understand is that the other part of that is that God is going to bring judgment on the nations. So these two things always go hand in hand, mercy and judgment or blessings and judgment. Um, the second reason why God wants to give them the land is because that was the land where he wanted to put his name. We are told various places in the Bible that God chose Jerusalem as his city and he wanted that land as his own and he wanted to fill it with his people. And finally, they're given the land because he promised it to Abraham. If you remember, he promised the land to Abraham, he promised the people, and he promised a king to Abraham. So when we get to the book of Joshua, what this is, is about is this is about God's faithfulness in delivering all those promises that he made to Abraham. So I'm just going to share you this, with you this screen. And let's have a look at the bigger picture for a few moments. OK, so we've got here a timeline. It's a, a brief timeline. We've got Abraham, uh, who God gave the promises to. And then we've got Moses. Now, what was special about Moses? Well, Moses was the servant of God. It comes out time and time again how that Moses was a servant and that was Moses's purpose. He was the servant that would lead the people to the promised land. And we have here a wonderful type, don't we, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Moses and Joshua who together form this type of Jesus. We have Moses who forms the servant aspect, but as we know, the servant had to die so that the saviour could live. And that's the type we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to become the saviour, Jesus, first of all, had to become the servant and he had to die so that he could become the saviour. Now, if you turn to uh, Joshua chapter one, it tells us this wonderful type in this first chapter. So Joshua chapter one, and I suggest that you keep your a finger or bookmark in the book of Joshua because we're going to keep coming back there. In Joshua chapter one, verse two, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise. So he's talking now to Joshua. Now, therefore, arise and go over 
this Jordan. So Moses, the servant, dies so that Joshua, the saviour, and that's what his name means, if you remember, God saves, can arise and go over. So then on our um, presentation here, we've got then Joshua now, the saviour who rises, he defeats the enemy, just like Jesus defeated the enemy of sin and death, didn't he, when he died and rose again. He secures the inheritance. And again, that's what Jesus did when he died and he rose again. He secured not only his inheritance, but he secured our inheritance in the kingdom as well. But he also opens the way for us to enter in as well. So when we look at the book of Joshua, and we'll go on to see, the book of Joshua is all about Joshua. All right. Now, you may say, well, that's a bit obvious. The book's named after Joshua. But often in these books, it's about the people, isn't it? And it's about various people. But as we go through the book of Joshua, it is centred on Joshua and what Joshua is doing. OK, and we've got to remember that that this is all about God's faithfulness and how he delivers the promises through Joshua. And when we get to the end of the life of Joshua, we find then that Joshua does everything that God commands him to do. OK, so he fulfills the law. He fulfills uh, what God says. He is obedient. He is faithful and he takes active possession of the land. So we get to the end of Joshua's life then and everything is looking good. And this is where, again, we have this type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled everything that God wanted to do so that it opens the way for us. Now, what comes after Joshua? Well, it's the book of Judges, isn't it? And what should have happened and, and the way the Bible is set out is that we have Joshua and Judges set side by side. Joshua is about God's faithfulness. So what is Judges about? Well, Judges should have been about man's faithfulness, okay? It was how the children of Israel, having seen the example of Joshua, having seen that by being obedient to God and doing what God says, then they could have inherited the land. And therefore, the people should have learned from Joshua and applied that to their lives. And they should have done that by gaining the inheritance it should have been a priest-led society. There should have been unity amongst them. They should have served God and they should have gone forward in faith. And that's no different to the life that we lead now, isn't it? Jesus has done everything for us. He set us the example. He's shown us God's faithfulness in that he's fulfilled God's promises. And now it gets passed over to us. We, in essence are the book of Judges, aren't we? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to live our lives in order to replicate the example set by Jesus, or in, these case, in, in, in the case here of Joshua? And we know that that didn't happen. You see, what should have happened is that should have led to them as accepting God as their king. But... What did happen? Well, none of that happened. 
And therefore man's faithfulness actually turned into man's rebellion. And they never came to accept God as their king. So what God had to do then is then he had to raise up David. Okay, a king uh, in order to bring the people back together to unite them and almost to start again and to set up a kingdom once again on earth, which would eventually lead in future generations to people to be able to accept Jesus in their lives. So let's just uh, turn to Numbers chapter 33. Keep your fingers in Joshua. Numbers chapter 33. Now, why am I taking this to this, um, this chapter here? If any of you have ever read it, you've probably gone through this chapter thinking, why is it telling me all these things? OK, uh, what it's telling you is every stage of the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness. Now, it's not very exciting. It doesn't even include some of the exciting bits of that journey. But why I'm bringing you here is that it tells you that there were 42 stages of the journey through the wilderness. 42 stages. Now, 42 is a really important number in the Bible. You may not think it is, but it comes up lots of times. And maybe that's some homework for yourselves to look at where 42 comes in the Bible. But 42 stages to the promised land and to Joshua. Now, if you were to look in Matthew chapter one, which I don't want you to do now, it tells you that there are 42 generations from Adam to Jesus. OK, and I think there's that's a lovely coincidence or is it a God incident that there are 42 stages up to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the saviour who brought light into the world and delivered the inheritance to his people. And so here we have 42 stages in the wilderness. And at the 42nd stage, they're on the borders of the River Jordan and about to cross over with Joshua. And what's Joshua going to do? He's going to deliver the inheritance to the people. And if we look at a few of those words there, between verses 50 and 55 there, we're not going to read through all of these, but there's certain words in there. Verse 52, drive out. Verse 53, dispossess uh, and possess. And verse um, 55 there, you will not drive out. This is all about active possession. It's about putting our faith into action. And that's the key to the book of Joshua. OK. The book of Joshua is not just about Joshua being faithful. It was about him putting faith into action. And as James tells us in his epistle, is that unless we put our faith into action, our faith is dead. OK, it can't do anything. It, it doesn't move us anywhere. We have to have faith and action. And that's what Joshua does in his life. And that's what he encourages the people to do in their lives as well. So let's go back um, to Joshua. In fact, before we do so, let's just go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Because we're just going to move the slides on here. So the book of Joshua is all about Joshua. It's Joshua centric, just like the Gospels are Jesus centric. It's all about Jesus. Joshua is about Joshua. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, 
we have uh, an interesting thing that Moses or God says to Joshua. 31 verse 7, and Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit. Now it's that word there, cause, that I want to focus on, and that means to bequeath, or inherit to bequeath. So what Moses is saying to Joshua is here is that you are the means by which the people are going to inherit the land. You go and inherit it, but then you bequeath it. You pass that inheritance on to the people. And that's exactly the same that the Lord Jesus has done for us. He has inherited the land and he has now bequeathed it to us. The kingdom has been bequeathed to us. And in Joshua 1 there, verse 3, and this now is uh, God speaking to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given to you. And notice that it's not this, this is what I've given to the people. It's wherever your foot treads, Joshua, that is what I am going to give to you. And that's why it's important when we looked at those um, maps at the beginning is that the only places that were inherited were the places where Joshua's foot trod okay where he was involved in the battles okay and that was the land that was given to Joshua the rest of the land was up to the people to inherit that was their acts of faith afterwards where they had to go out then and take active possession of the land just that in our lives, Jesus hasn't done everything for us. He's opened up the way of salvation. He's bequeathed the kingdom to us, but we still have to go out there and we still have to take active possession of our inheritance. We can't just sit there and do nothing. How is Joshua going to do this? Well, verses seven to nine tell us. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. Jesus fulfilled all the law, didn't it? It tells us that which Moses, my servant, commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth that thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, this here is about meditating on God's word in order to be prosperous. Now, what that doesn't mean and, and the word prosperous nowadays, what we say is, oh, that man or that woman's very prosperous. She's done really well for herself. She's got a good job. She's got a good house, got lots of money. They're very prosperous, that person. Well, that's not what it means here. In the biblical sense, prosper means being pushed forward. It means that you are being pushed forward by God. And you are being pushed forward through difficult times, challenging times. But God 
is pushing you forward. That's what it means to be prosperous. It means that God is behind you, pushing you forward. It's not something that you do yourself. It is about what God does to you. And how's he going to do that? By meditating day and night. And on numerous occasions in the Gospels, we hear, don't we, how Jesus gets up early in the morning in order to pray to his God. It tells us how he spends all night in prayer. Now, I don't necessarily think that that means that he's praying all the time. I think what he's doing is he is meditating on the word, just like Joshua is told to do, so that God would push Jesus through those challenges and those trials that he faced. And I think that's a really important lesson in our lives. As you go through the book of Joshua, um, you will notice that there are memorial stones set up all over the place. When they cross the Jordan, they have to set up memorial stones. They set up memorial stones in Gilgal. When they uh, have the covenant, um, they set up uh, memorial stones. When they defeat enemies, they set up memorial stones. Uh, right at the end, when Joshua is dying, he sets up a memorial stone. Memorial stones are all over the book of Joshua. Why is that? Well, it's because it is tracking the way of salvation for the people. And they're there in order that people remember. And it always says, um, these are set up because when your children ask you, why are these stones here? Then you can tell them what God has done. And that is so important in our lives as well, especially as adults, but also as young people. OK, your, your parents, your grandparents have set up memorial stones in your life. OK, to, to teach you about how God has acted in their lives, how God has worked with them so that you can learn from that as well. And it's no different from the Lord Jesus setting up memorial stones for us. He set them up every week, hasn't he? Where he says, what I want you to do is to meet together and I want you to share the memorial of bread and wine so that you remember what I have done for you and how God has worked through me in order to bring about salvation. And so the book of Joshua is all about salvation and it's all about plotting that course of salvation through the life of Joshua. So that when the next generation come along, they can say, why are these memorial stones here? And the fathers and the mothers can say, because God has saved us and he has brought us and given us this inheritance. It's also interesting there that Joshua never loses a battle. OK, all the way through the book of Joshua, it's never recorded that Joshua ever loses a battle. In fact, when we first come across Joshua, if you want to just turn back to uh, Exodus chapter 17. This is the first time we hear about Joshua. And it, and it just comes out of nowhere. OK. We have no introduction to Joshua. It's just like, bam, Joshua there on the scene. When a battle needs to be fought, who's going to fight it? Well, Joshua is going to fight it. And who's he fighting against? He's fighting against the Amalekites. Now, 
what is interesting about the Amalekites? Well, we could just say, well, they were just a nation that fought against Israel and they had a few battles together. But that's not the case. The Amalekites are set up as a symbol of sin and death. And it tells us that they're a symbol of sin and death through all generations. It tells you that if you're in uh, chapter 17, the last verse, um, uh, verse 16, for he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And when we look through the history of the Bible, the Old Testament, you will see the Amalekites will keep popping up. OK, and they will keep battling against Israel. And I think you get um, a, a mention right at, at the end, even in the book of Esther, you get um, Haman, don't you, who was uh, considered to be uh, an Amalekite. And so through from generation to generation, you get this symbol of sin and death constantly fighting against the people. Now, that's not the case for Joshua, because Joshua only ever fights the Amalekites once. And it's in here in Exodus chapter 17, and he defeats the Amalekites. And we've got there a really good type then of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ defeats sin and death once in his life, and he never has to do it again. Whereas for everybody else, we are constantly fighting against sin and death in our lives. And there's a lovely type there, isn't there, with Joshua. <clears throat> but in this incident there, we're introduced to Joshua for the first time. And it tells us what Joshua's purpose is going to be. So Joshua gets an early insight now into what God's future plan with him is. And God is saying to Joshua, look, you're fighting the Amalekites now, but in the future, you are going to fight the enemies of Israel. And you are the one that's going to gain the inheritance in the land. OK, so there's a bit of a, an insight there into what God's plan with Joshua was, just like Joshua, be, uh, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. That was a bit of an insight, wasn't it, for Jesus into what was to come later when he was going to have to overcome all of those same temptations when he was on the cross. Um, and finally, there on that slide, Joshua completed everything according to what God had said or commanded. Uh, and if we just go there to Joshua chapter 11. And verse 15, as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so did Moses command Joshua and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Um, and it tells us then that uh, verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. So it gives this impression here that not only did Joshua do everything that God commanded, but it also gives the impression that he takes the whole land. Uh, but that's not the case, because when we turn over to Joshua chapter 13, um, we've got the case now, verse one. Now, Joshua is old and stricken in years. And the Lord said to him, thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth very much land to be possessed. So 
coming back back to this idea here that Joshua only conquered the bits that he was involved in. The rest of the land had to be up to the people to take possession of that. Just like in our lives, Jesus hasn't done everything for us, although he has, but there is some, something still left for us to do. We have to take responsibility for our own lives and for gaining our inheritance. Okay, so let's... Uh, uh, this is the, the final slide, and I think I'm more or less bang on time, so that's good. So as we go through the book of Joshua, um, everything is about what Joshua did. Now, I don't think for one moment that the only person doing anything um, in this period was Joshua, but that's what the Bible says, okay? Um, so, for example, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 3 there, it says that Joshua circumcised the people. Now, I don't think for one minute that Joshua, on his own, circumcised, I don't know, I don't know, 100,000 men on his own. That, that would have taken days. All right. But the Bible tells us that it was Joshua that did it. And there's a reason for that, because all the things that we do, we do them through the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? So that it's in Jesus that we are able to do things. And I think then as the book of Joshua unrolls and it all unfolds, we are given this insight into what Joshua does, but encapsulated in that, he brings the people with him, almost that they are byproducts of his salvation. Just like we are a byproduct of the salvation that Jesus achieved. We can do nothing on our own. And just look at that list there. I will magnify thee, Joshua. It's Joshua that rose early. Joshua who set up and pitched the stones. Joshua who circumcised. Joshua is, they were given into Joshua's hands, not the people's hand, but Joshua's hands. Joshua saved. Joshua drew not um, his hand back. Joshua built an altar and wrote the law on the stones. Joshua made peace. He made them hewers of wood. Joshua smote them. So we can see here then how um, the, the inspired writer, whoever wrote Joshua, is putting Joshua up front and centre to the book to show us that this is all about the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come across now one of my favourite characters in the Bible, Rahab. Um, she's she's an absolutely incredible woman. Um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, some of the, the great examples in Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, and what we tend to do is we tend to miss some of these smaller characters. But Rahab is is a huge character, not only in this story, but in generations to come right up to the Lord Jesus Christ as we know she is the in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ 
uh, and she gets a good mention in the book of Hebrews. So let's not discount or put down Rahab in, in any form or any way. So he said before, didn't we, that Joshua's duty was to take active possession of the land. And I keep stressing that. OK, it is about taking your initiative and doing something about it. And there are often decisions in our lives where we don't know what to do. Right. So do we just sit around and think, well, if God wants me to do something, he will tell me or he will move me or he will give me a sign. Well, that's not a bad way of looking at it because you are trusting in God. Or does God actually want you to do something and then he will work with you and he will either prosper it or he will he will turn it into a different direction. And with Joshua here in chapter two, we find straight away that he is taking an action in order to go and conquer Jericho. Now, we don't know whether God has spoken to him before this and told him what to do. But what does Joshua do? He sends out spies to go and have a look into Jericho. Now, that's a, a good military tactic, isn't it? Uh, I suppose it happens today. I suppose it's done by drones nowadays that, uh, you know, a, a commander or a general will send out a drone or a spy to go and have a look at the land, to see what's happening there, where the best places to attack, what the best strategy is. Now, jo Joshua at this time probably doesn't know what God has in mind. So sometimes God gets us to do things. We put in all this effort. We, we spend all this time thinking about it. Right. Ha, ha, what's the best way for us to preach? What's the best way for us to hold a, a campaign? And we do all this organization. But actually, God knows what's going to happen. And in this uh, circumstance, we see Joshua doing all this work. But actually, in the end of it, they don't have to do anything because God does it all. He's the one that brings down Jericho. Uh, and, and so but this is how God wants us to work. He wants us to be inactive and for looking for opportunities and then he will work with us. So Joshua sends these spies. Now, interestingly enough, um, when you go to James and again, if, if you don't want to turn this up, but James chapter two, verse twenty five. It tells us a bit about these spies, but they are no longer called spies. In verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. So that word messenger there is angelos, angels, messengers of God. Uh, and what I find about this is fascinating is that the spies thought they were spies. They thought that they were going in there in order to help Joshua to defeat Jericho. And they thought, well, we're going to nip in here. We're going to have a quick look around, have a look to see what's happening. Then we'll nip back over the Jordan, back to Joshua and report. That's what they thought they were doing. God had other ideas because they were going to be messengers of him. And they didn't even know that that's what they were there for. And so it is in our lives is that we sometimes end up doing strange things in our lives. And I've heard all sorts of stories where people have had to go abroad for a business trip or, they, you know, their plane's been diverted and all sorts of weird things have happened to them. 
But as a result of that, they have been able to either set up an ecclesia, they've come into contact with somebody who then has come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we never know in our lives what God has got prepared for us. And what we may think is just a normal activity in our lives, God turns us into messengers for him. He turns us into angels, doesn't he, in order to deliver his message. And what we have here is, um, I call it the preaching paradigm. Call, call it what you want. It's, it's an example of how preaching should work. Okay. Now, there's a debate in the community, isn't there? Christadelphian community is, how do we preach? Do we go out and preach to people or do we sit in our halls and our ecclesias and let God bring the people to us? OK, There's, you've got two extremes there. Well, both of them are true. And somewhere in the middle, there's a whole load of truth as well, because God works at both of those extremes. God can bring somebody to us in our ecclesial hall. But also, if we go out there and preach, God can also create a meeting place where we can meet with people and what we have here is we have God using the spies and Rahab the spies are the preachers Rahab is the person that needs to be converted and neither of them know about what the other person is doing so the spies are going in there thinking right God's going to be with us here we're going to have no problems we're going to go in there come out no problem at all all of a sudden, things start going wrong for the spies. Somebody in the city raises the alarm that there are spies in the city. All of a sudden, people are looking for the spies. The spies now are starting to feel a bit worried. What's going to happen to us? Why has God done this to me? Why has God put me in this situation where I'm going to die? That's what we think sometimes, isn't it? Rahab, on the other hand, she's feeling a bit anxious. She's heard the stories about the Israelites. She's heard the stories about what God does. She's seen the Israelites coming across the River Jordan. OK, she's getting a bit worried now. How is she going to save herself and how is she going to save her family? And this is what Rahab is doing it for. She's not so concerned about herself. It says that she wants to save her family or families. It's actually plural. So we don't know how many people were saved. But God works with the spies and Rahab in order to bring them together in an unusual circumstance because God traps the spies in Rahab's house. They can't get out. So he holds the preachers there, but he puts Rahab in a situation now where she's got the opportunity to show her faith to the spies. And therefore, God creates these meeting places where he can bring the preacher and the the um, the convert together. Wonderful example. Now, let's have a think about Rahab. What does her name mean? Well, it means broad and wide. OK, and you have to have a little bit of a smile about that. You know, what, do, does that apply to her? Was she a broad lady or was she a, a wide lady? I don't know. I, I'm, uh, we're, we're not actually told. Um, but Rahab is also used elsewhere in scripture, uh, slightly different, Rahab, um, which is about Egypt. And in that context, it's talking about loud, stubborn, proud. Now, I don't think for one minute that Rahab was a, a proud woman. The job that she did 
did not lend itself to being proud. However, on the other hand, I don't think she was a shrinking violet. The profession that she had, which she was a harlot, okay, she, she would have been able to stand up for herself, okay, and I guess she was very vocal. Um, and Rahab is always referred to as a harlot, all the way through scripture, it's always Rahab the harlot. There's a couple of verses where it's just Rahab, but in the previous verse or the verse after it, it refers to as the harlot. So Rahab never escapes that title of Rahab the harlot. And we think that's reason for that is because she is almost set there as a benchmark for all of us. That if any of us can say, well, my life is too bad. I've done too many bad things in my life that God would never want to save me. Oh, hold on a minute. What about Rahab the harlot? If you think you're bad, what about Rahab? There is one exception to this. There is one exception where she's not referred to as Rahab the harlot, and that's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter one, where she is referred to as Rahab. Okay, and, uh, and, and that's wonderful, isn't it? That in the Lord Jesus, all that sin, that guilt, that association with the life that she had has been taken away. And she is now referred to as in her own right as Rahab because she is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's a lovely example, isn't it? Um, let's just turn to um, Hebrews chapter 11 because we made reference to that because she appears here um, quite uniquely. OK, and I'll, I'll say that and I'll explain what I mean by why she is so unique in this list of characters. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29. So uh, verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So the last act of faith, uh, of verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, which the Egyptians are swayed to do, were drowned. So the last act of faith we get recorded in Hebrews 11 is the people crossing through the Red Sea. And then we have a 40 year period then where nothing is mentioned about faith in the record. It's, it's like it's a dead period. It's written off. OK, in God's time, in man's time, 40 years of sin and death and dying is written off. But in verse 30, what's the next act of faith that happens? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Well, by whose faith? Whose faith is that? Is that, Mo is that Joshua's faith? Is it the people's faith? Or is it Rahab's faith? I don't know, but I'll leave that hanging for a bit. After they were compassed about seven days, OK, so who was in Jericho for seven days while the, the armies were marching around? Rahab was and she had to have faith. And then verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believe not when she had received the spies with peace. So Rahab, this woman of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, 
Firstly, the only Gentile mentioned in that list of characters um, in Hebrews 11. She's mentioned as the first act of faith after the period of 40 years. Um, and also she's the first Gentile mentioned in the, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And in verse 31 there at the end there, it says that she received the, the spies with peace. And that word peace there means she joined herself together with the spies. Uh, and that, that word join, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really important word, isn't it? Because we join ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? And so Rahab now joins herself with the spies, and that's her act of faith. While we're in Hebrews 11, just look at verse 10, because this is talking about Abraham now, and I'll tell you why it's relevant to, um, to uh, Rahab. Verse 10, for he looked for a city which hath foundations. So Abraham is looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, that is relevant to Rahab because she's living in a city that doesn't have firm foundations. And I'll go on to explain why I think it didn't have firm foundations uh, in, in the next talk or this talk. I can't remember where it is. But hang on to that thought that Rahab knew she was in a city that didn't have foundations and she was looking for a city that did have foundations. Okay, let's go back to Joshua chapter two. Uh, Joshua two and verse eight. And we pick up the story here now of the spies being in Rahab's house. And they were just, it says verse eight there. And before they were late, they were just about to lay down to sleep. Okay, maybe they thought they'd had a lucky escape. Maybe they thought, oh, actually, things aren't as bad as I thought. God is maybe with us. Uh, and they were just, they're just about to go to sleep. And then Rahab appears. And as I say, Rahab was not a shrinking violent because she then goes on to have this, this monologue with them. And if you notice here, it's just her speaking. She she outpours all of those things that were making her anxious. She outpours it all to these spies. And what does she say? Verse nine. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. So Rahab has more faith than the children of Israel who are still worried about how are we going to take the land? There's giants in the land. How are we going to take the land? Well, Rahab has said, the Lord's given you the land. So she has more faith than the children of Israel. And that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Uh, fulfillment there of prophecy. Exodus 15 verse 14, if you've got your pencils out, um, it tells us there that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that was given to Moses. But you can have a look at that yourself. Verse 10. Now look at the pronouns here. We have heard how the Lord dried up the, the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Here we go, verse 11. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there any remain any more courage in any man because of you. So what Rahab is saying is that everybody in Jericho had heard those stories. 
everyone in Jericho had heard the message that the people of God were coming and that he had given them the land. But only Rahab, only Rahab responded to that and believed it. And that's a miracle, isn't it? Because the whole, the whole, um, you know, when, when we go out there, we, we can tell people until we're blue in the face about Jesus coming back and the fact that the kingdom's going to be set up and what's going to happen. But if they don't believe, then they're never going to learn, are they? And they're, and they're going to be caught up in the judgment, um, which is not going to be very nice. But only Rahab believed. Um, and what? how does he refer, she refer to God? Look at this. For the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim. She's using the, the, the name of God, isn't she? He is God in heaven above and in earth below. How does she know that God is the God in heaven above and in earth below? Well, it tells us that in Deuteronomy chapter four. Now, was she quoting scripture? Well, I don't think she was quoting scripture. I don't think she would have that scripture. But over time, God would have become known as the God in heaven above and in earth beneath. So she come to know God as this God that was in heaven, but also in earth. And it's lovely as we go through Joshua, we won't get to it today. But God sends hail from heaven, doesn't he, to destroy the armies. But as with Jericho, what I think is that he also used the earth in order to destroy Jericho as well. OK, so God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. Now, then, it says that she makes peace in James with the spies. How does she do that? Well, she bargains with them, doesn't she? She says, I have protected you. I have given you your life. Now, I want you to give me my life. And I want you to show me at the end of verse 12 there and give me a true token. So she wants a sign from the spies that she is going to be saved. And how do the spies answer verse 14? And the men answered, our life for yours. And that's the peace that she makes with the spies. That's how she joins herself with the spies. She makes a bargain with them, doesn't she? My life for yours, your life for mine. But I want a sign from you to tell me that that's true. Sorry, just checking the just checking the time. Now, what is that sign that's given? Well, we know what the sign is because um, we that she gets given a scarlet thread, doesn't she? She gets given a scarlet thread by the spies, and the spies say, "Show this out of your window, okay? And if you're showing this sign, then you will not be destroyed. You will be." delivered. Now for years, and I don't know whether this comes from Sunday school or books or picture books or whatever, I always thought that the rope that came, that the spies were let down by, was the same as the scarlet, I thought it was the same thing. I thought there was the scarlet rope, a rope, but why would you have a rope that was red? It doesn't make sense, does it? I think there were two things. There was the rope by which she let the spies out, but there was also a scarlet thread. And I don't think this thread was very big. And that's a, another subject, uh, but worth looking into. 
that she was going to hang outside of her window. And that thread becomes in verse 21. And she said, according unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet line in the window. Now that word line is the word tikvah, the hope, right? So the sign that the spies give her, she turns into her hope. And the word tikvah there means the thing that I most long for. So what Rahab was being told to do was to hang up high, show it to everybody. The thing that I most hope for in life is bound up in this scarlet thread. And this is my salvation. Uh, just go back to keep your finger in there. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. And some of you may already know where I'm going with this. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 12 because we go back to the Passover. OK, and we can't we can't ignore this, can we? That the two things are similar. The red outside of the window bringing salvation. OK, the angels of the Lord in the Passover in Egypt, the people had to put the blood on the lintels, didn't they? So that the destroying angel passed by and saved their house. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. Here we go. And the blood shall be to you for a token. OK, now it's a different word. It's not tikvah there, but it's it's still a token. It's a sign. Um, upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So we have there, don't we? The blood and the Passover, the same as this red scarlet line that. Um, Rahab has to put outside of her window. So this now to Rahab was her Passover, but it wasn't a Jewish Passover. It was a Gentile Passover specifically for her and anyone that was in her house, which is her family. If you, if you remember, everyone had to stay in the house. Um, and so and the scarlet thread is, is lovely, isn't it? Because um, we'll look at later how that the scarlet thread and the scarlet is bound up with a leprous house. And we'll, we'll have a look at this later, so we don't need to go there now. But scarlet was used in order to cleanse a house from leprosy. And what it's telling us there is that Rahab's house at that point in time, because it was part of Jericho, was a leprous house. OK, let's uh, let's move on. And I want to go now to look into chapter three of uh, Joshua, because the crossing of the Jordan. Fascinating. Uh, I'm going to have to skip skip a bit here to keep uh, within my time slot. Let's put the uh, presentation back up and let's see where we've got to. Oh, no, here we go. The, the crossing of the Jordan. Why? Why did God ask them to cross over the Jordan? Why was it done when the Jordan was flooded? Well, we know that at that time it was likely to be the Passover. In fact, we're actually told that it was at the time of Passover. If we look at um, uh, Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10, Joshua chapter 5 verse 10, 
And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. So this is all about the time of the Passover. So not only were the, the, the Jews holding a Passover, but the Gentiles in, in Rahab's house were also holding a Passover at the similar time. It was to do to uh, the crossing of the Jordan also was about magnifying um, Joshua. Now, it tells us that the day that they cross over the Jordan, if we have a look in chapter four, verse 19, chapter four, Joshua four, verse 19, and the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now, the 10th day of the first month was the day that they chose the Passover lamb. Right. Now, that's really important. So the day in which Joshua crosses over the Jordan is the day in which the people chose the Passover lamb. And it tells us that when they cross the Jordan, God says, in uh, chapter three, verse, verse seven, it was in order to magnify Joshua, to point him out, to bring him to the forefront. Why? Because Joshua was to become that Passover lamb that was to be chosen by the people. Uh, and when we told how they crossed the Jordan, it, it tells us that they had to remain 2000 cubits from the Ark of the Covenant that was in the middle. So 2,000 cubits maybe that way, 2,000 cubits that way, which is about a kilometre. 2,000 cubits is nearly a, a kilometre. So a kilometre either way, the children of Israel had to pass by the Ark of the Covenant in order to cross the Red Sea. Now, where would Joshua have been? Well, it doesn't tell us. Would he have been in the centre with the Ark of the Covenant? Would he have been at the front ahead of the people? But either way, all the people's eyes would have been on Joshua. And therefore, Joshua is the person that is being magnified as the Passover lamb when they go into the land. So that when the Passover is kept on the 14th in type, Joshua is it. He's going to be the one that's going to bring salvation. Now, if you turn to John chapter 12, we have here now, Jesus entering Jerusalem, okay, on the donkey or the colt or the ass. And um, it's really hard to work out the days here. But most commentators agree that John chapter 12 and verse 12 there, on the next day was the 10th day of the first month. So this is before Passover. And now Jesus then is coming into Jerusalem on the donkey and what's everyone doing is they are all shouting hosanna to him lord save us so the people are choosing their lamb whether they knew it or not but they were magnifying jesus in the presence of the people and say, saying to him save us save us now hosanna um, is from the from the hebrew word yorshah right? And it's from another word as well, which means I pray thee now. Um, so Yorsha means to save. So save, I pray thee now. Now, what's interesting about this 
is that Joshua's name before he was called Joshua was Oshia or Hoshia. And that's that same word there from Joshua. Okay. The words for Hosanna and Oshia or Hoshia come from the same root word. And so in the days of Jesus, when he was coming into Jerusalem, the people were saying, save us, save us. And God was saying, well, here is your salvation, Jesus. God will save. And it's no different than with, with, with Joshua. His name used to mean save us. And then if you remember in Numbers 13, verse 16, Moses changes his name to Joshua. God will save us. And there's a lovely type there, isn't there? Is that J Joshua becomes save us to God will save. Just like Jesus, they said, save us, Jesus. And God said, Jesus will save. Won wonderful, wonderful. Okay. Uh, and then if you're still in John, just turn back to Luke chapter 19, because this is quite amazing as well, I think. Is that after this happens in Luke's record, what does Jesus do in verse 41? And when he was come near, he beheld the city. So Jesus now is beholding the city of Jerusalem. It tells us that when Joshua crosses over the River Jordan, which we'll look at, he beholds the city of Jericho. But what's going to happen to Jerusalem in, uh, okay, verse 43 for the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around. What happens at Jericho? The people go round and round and round. They compass Jericho around. Verse 44. And shall lay thee even with the ground. So they're going to destroy Jerusalem. It's going to be a pile of rubble. Uh, it goes on to say there in verse 44 that not one stone will be left upon another. And what happens with Jericho? It's destroyed. It's raised to the ground. It's burned. It's pulled down. OK, so just as Jesus going into Jerusalem and condemning it. Now we've got Joshua crossing over the Jordan as the chosen lamb and condemning Jericho. OK, so this is. a. Oh, we've only got a few minutes. Let's let's quick, quickly uh, whiz through this. Um, so we've got there, we know the analogies maybe from our Sunday school or our youth group lessons here. We've got uh, Adam up here um, and then we've got the Dead Sea here, don't we? And, and we know that, uh, you know, the, the Jordan, the winder, the, the thing that comes down is life. And from Adam, we get death and we end up in the Dead Sea. So we all die, don't we? However, with Joshua or with Jesus, um, Joshua diverts that. From not going into the Dead Sea, but takes us rather into the promised land. OK, uh, and it's a wonderful analogy, I think, that from Adam we all die. But in Joshua or in Jesus, we can get into the promised land and we can avoid death. But look at the valley here. It's between two tectonic plates. It's between the African tectonic plate and it's between the Arabian tectonic plate. In fact, it's the Jordan Rift Valley. And there are always earthquakes in the Jordan Rift Valley. And round about here, Adam, in the text, it tells us it's close to a place called Zaratan. 
Zaratan's a, a bit more further down here near the Jordan. And Zaratan was the place where they used to make the clay molds for uh, the um, for making bronze castings for the temple. So this area here was made of clay. Okay, now we know what clay's like. It's thick, it's stodgy, it holds water, but it's very unstable. You know, wet clay, if, if you try and build it up, it, it flops, doesn't it? It's not very stable. Um, and therefore, it's highly likely, how did the water of the Jordan stop? Well, it's likely that there was probably an earthquake which affected this region here. Now, I've tried to look into this because I don't, a lot of Bible commentators say this, but they don't back it up with evidence. This is a man called Amos Nur, no guesses for uh, knowing that he's probably a Jew himself with a name like Amos, but he's a professor of geophysics, okay? So he's an academic, he's not gonna say things, I don't think, that um, are not true because his reputation relies on it. But during the 1927 earthquake, several ground cracks appeared together with an outpouring of groundwater. This soil liquefaction phenomenon has been well observed in earthquakes elsewhere. During the earthquake, mudslides occurred along the Jordan near Darmia, about 30 kilometers, that's 18 miles north of Jericho. These temporarily stopped the river's flow. Now, Adam is now Darmia. So what, what is now present day Darmia used to be the old city of Adam. The site of the 1927 mudslides, which cut off the flow of the Jordan. Such cutoffs lasting typically one to two days have also been recorded on several dates in history. The stoppage of the Jordan is so typical of earthquakes in this region that little doubt can be left of the reality of such events in Joshua's time. So I tried to do a, digging, a bit of digging around to see if there's any pictures and I found a couple. These are really old, but this is a mudslide here near Darmia. Um, and it says here, this was taken in 1957 and it shows the Jordan flowing around the mudslide. Um, this mudslide was again caused by an earthquake. If it had been more substantial, it would have totally blocked the river. Now, if you look at this, you can see the river here and you can see the river here. Now, what would have happened is actually that river would have continued across down there but this mudslide came down and actually blocked off the whole river. But in time, the water has found its way around it and then carried on. Um, and here's some pictures of uh, the Jordan near Darmia. Again, they're old pictures, but you can see these high banks here. Um, and again, all around here, look, there's these high banks which are susceptible to mudslides. Uh, and there's a, there's a geolo geolo sorry, geological record of historic earthquakes here. And it says in 1927, the flow of the River Jordan stopped for 22 hours due to landslides near Darmia or Adam. On the other hand, the towns closer to the epicenter, Jericho and Jerusalem, experienced lower intensity. Uh, there are other reports, though, that said that Jerus uh, Jericho um, damage was done in Jericho in 1927. Um, here's an actual picture from 1927. Um, earthquake on the 11th of July, the Jordan flow checked, that means just stopped, by caving it in of the riverbanks, trees thrown in midstream. So you can't see it very well, but obviously there's a, a blockage here and it's starting to flood and it stopped the flow of the River Jordan. Now, 
why is that important? Well, it's important, isn't it? Because we, we could say, well, no, it was a miracle. Um, and therefore there wasn't an earthquake. God stopped the water. And that's fine. You know, God could quite easily do that. He has the power to do anything that he wants to do. But we also know in the Bible that God also uses natural phenomena. Later on in, in Joshua, we read, don't we, how that he uses hailstones to defeat an army. Uh, when Joshua goes against the Philistines, it tells us that God uses an earthquake to destroy the Philistines. Um, and in the case of Deborah and Barak, it's highly likely that flooding um, stopped the chariots of Sisera uh, and therefore caused his army to be destroyed um, by the Israelites. So there are lots of examples in the Bible where God does use natural phenomenon to, to bring out his purpose. Now, I'm, I'm going to finish here um, just because of time, and maybe we can pick up some, some more in the next talk that I've, I've had to miss out. But just go to Psalm 114. So what we need to do with all these things is, what does the Bible say about it? Does the Bible give in any indication that this might have happened? Well, in Psalm 114, <clears throat> we get recorded four events here, and they're all in sequence. <clears throat> Psalm 114, when Israel went out of Egypt, so we're talking here about the exodus from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Right. Verse three, the sea saw it and fled back. So Red Sea, crossing of the Red Sea. Then the Jordan was driven back, crossing of the River Jordan. Four, the mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. What aileth thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back, ye mountains, that ye skip like rams, and ye little hills like lambs. Now, uh, the reference, the, the idea here is that the mountains and the hills, they skipped. Now, that's maybe a polite way of saying that there was an earth tremor, okay? So the hills, the mountains, quaking tremoring and it looked like they were skipping like a you know like a lamb skips along or a, a goat or, or whatever but but they all seem linked together don't they the crossing of the jordan and and the mountains possibly there an earthquake just a suggestion and i'm not going to be dogmatic on that or any of that about the jordan but i think it's just an interesting thing maybe that could have happened to have stopped the jordan to allow the children of israel to cross upon and in our next talk, we will look at what the possible other implications of there being an earthquake that could well have destabilised Jericho. Uh, there's a bit I wanted to catch up from the last talk, so I've re had to rejuggle uh, how I'm going to do things. So can we just turn back to chapter four, please, before we go into chapter six? Because there's a few little things that I need, I think, are really important to pick up from them, um, the Joshua and the children of Israel crossing the Jordan. So when they cross the Jordan, chapter four, verse five, Joshua gives them instructions and he, he, he says, 
um, pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. So Joshua instructs them to pick up 12 stones and carry them on their shoulders. So these these weren't little pebbles. These, these were big, heavy stones, OK, that they had to carry on their shoulders. Um, why, verse 6 tells us, so that it can be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in the time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? And the answer is that, you know, God took them across the, the, the Jordan. So these stones were going to be carried across the Jordan and they were going to be set in the land. Likewise, uh, verse 9 tells us that Joshua uh, Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood and they are there unto this day. Um, and I used to think that this, this was set up in the centre of the Jordan and then when the water came back you, you'd never be able to see it again but what it actually says is that he had to set them up where the feet of the priests were and if you remember at that time the River Jordan was flooded so its banks were flooded. It actually tells us that. And it says that when the priest's feet touched the water, then that's when the water stopped. So the priest's feet would have been right out um, on the side of the bank. Yeah. From where the normal river would flow. So the Joshua set up there these stones on the side of the bank in the uh, in the wilderness, in effect. So on the east side of the River Jordan. So we have this situation then where we have a pile of stones on the east, which every Passover, the river would rise and fall. So it would cover these stones, wash them, uh, and then recede again. So you've got this idea then that, the, the, that this was the generation that was left behind in the wilderness. These stones represented the people that died in the wilderness and never made it across the Jordan. However, but through the Passover, the rising and the falling of the water, those people were able to go across the Jordan and then they were set up then in the promised land. And the stones then that Joshua sets up represents the nation that came out of the wilderness and that were saved through the waters of baptism and were then set up in the promised land. Now, what does it tell us that the, the, the people did with these stones that were taken out of the Jordan and carried into the promised land? Well, verse eight tells us, and the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And I want you to remember that phrase, laid them down, because that will come up later. So the people carried the stones and they laid them down um, on the ground. OK, but what does Joshua do with those stones? Well, it's recorded for us in verse 20. Uh, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, and notice again here, it's Joshua that's doing it. So everything that happens is Joshua doing so Joshua pitched them in Gilgal, and that word pitch there means to rise or to establish. So Joshua sets, picks up these stones 
and he makes them to stand up. And a lot of people think that Gilgal means, uh, the word means uh, wheel or a circle. And we told later on that uh, the name comes from the fact that the, the people were circumcised at Gilgal and the cutting off of the reproach and everything. But there is a, a good argument as well that the stones that Joshua set up were set out in a circle, a bit like standing stones that we have across the UK. You know, you have these circles of stones. Um, but, but the idea, though, is that it is Joshua that takes these stones out of the Jordan and stands them upright okay and and the lesson there is of course that out of baptism out of the washing of the stones that Jesus is able to take us and stand us upright in his presence and if we go to Luke chapter 3 keep keep your uh, fingers in Joshua 4 but if you go to Luke chapter 3 and we have here um, John the Baptist, don't we, baptising in the Jordan at a place called Beth Abara, which means the house of the crossing. Now, it could just mean that that was the local ford. You know, that's where um, people just cross the river normally. It could also mean, though, it was the place where the children of Israel crossed the River Jordan or where Elisha crossed the River Jordan. There's obviously a place where um, it got known as the House of the Crossing. So we've got uh, Luke, uh, sorry, John the Baptist here baptising in the River Jordan, verse 8. And he's talking to the people, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then verse 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance and be, begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And I just wonder there whether um, when John was, was he referring <clears throat> to those stones that Joshua had set up on the east side of the Jordan that people would have known about? And John the Baptist was saying, do you not know that of those stones there, God can raise up a child unto Abraham? Uh, and so the, these stones become symbolic, don't they? The stones that represent the people that died. But those people that pass through the Jordan, John the Baptist baptising people in the Jordan, they could then become stones or children of Abraham, which would then go into um, the promised land. And when we go back to Joshua chapter four, sorry, Joshua, um, Joshua chapter three, sorry. Uh, Joshua chapter three in the last verse, verse 17. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground. OK, so the Israelites passed over. But. Until all the people were passed clean over. So there's a distinction there. There's the Israelites that passed over. But then it says, and all the people that passed over. Well, is that the same group of people or is it two separate people words well the word there for for people means gentile or heathen and so there's this idea that when they left Israel, egypt 
And we know that it tells us that there was a mixed multitude that left with them from Egypt. So they were not only Jews, but there are also Gentiles and heathen. Uh, and here we see the Jews and the Gentiles crossing together across the River Jordan. And anyone who crossed over then became part of the nation of Israel. So just like these stones that John was referring to, anybody, it doesn't matter that you descend from Abraham, that your father's Abraham, which he was having to go at the Jews, wasn't he? He was saying, it, do, it doesn't matter who, who your father is. God of these stones can raise up a child unto Abraham. And, and Abraham's name, if you remember, it was changed from Abram, which was the high father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. OK, so in the promises given to Abraham, we have this idea that the Jews, the Gentiles all come together and can all become children of Abraham. And I think that's what these stones represented. OK, let's go on to chapter six then. And uh, we have now here. All the people now in front of Jericho looking up and thinking, how on earth are we going to destroy this city? Jericho was built like a fortress, which we'll go and have a look at in a few moments. But it tells us there that Jericho was straightly shut up. OK, so Jericho here thought they were in for a long siege. All right. They'd seen all these people coming. All the people from the neighbouring areas, villages, the plains of Jericho would have all run into Jericho. There's evidence uh, that when they went into, do, into Jericho to do an archaeological dig there, they found lots of pots full of grain, um, incidentally burnt grain, charred grain. Um, so Jericho thought that they were going to be in for a long siege and they thought, OK, if we last this out long enough, guys, um, Israel are going to get a bit tired and eventually they'll just go away. OK, but the evidence shows us that because that grain was um, um, burnt. OK, it shows us that the biblical record is probably true. And it also proves that it wasn't a long siege. Why does it prove that? Well, if it was a long siege, those those jars of grain would have all been used up or they'd have been half empty. But the fact that they were full meant that destruction came fairly quickly, which ties in with the biblical record. And it also ties in with the biblical record, because why weren't those jars of grain taken by the Israelites? Yeah. If you've just if you're moving into a new land and you're looking for food and provision, the first thing you would do would be to take the food um, from the cities. But if you remember, God says you don't touch anything in Jericho. Everything in Jericho, apart from Rahab and her family, are de de devoted to me. So again, there's proof there that they left all the food stuff in Jericho and it just got burnt and it got destroyed with the rest of Jericho. Um, so what, what's in, we have here, we referred, didn't we, in the last talk to Jericho being this leprous house. Um, so I'm just going to share this with you. Can you, can you see that, Ethan? Yeah, great. And, and there's lovely parallels here. We know the record of the leprous house in Leviticus chapter 14. And um, it ties in with what's happening with Jericho here. We have the priests inspecting the house. Well, we know that the spies went in and then for seven days, 
the priests circled Jericho as though they were inspecting um, Jericho. It says that the house was shut up for seven days for the leprous house. Uh, and it tells us uh, in six verse one there that the house was shut up uh, for seven days. Well, seven days, because that's the time it took for them to walk around. If you remember, they walked around for seven days. Verse 44, 45 of Leviticus 14 tells us that they if leprosy was found in the house, then they had to break the house down and all the stones. They had to bring it down to rubble. And we know, of course, that that's what happened to Jericho. It fell down flat. Verse 46 tells us those in the house will be unclean until evening. And later on in chapter six, it tells us how that Rahab and her family, they weren't taken straight into the camp of the Israelites. It said that they were left outside of the camp. And that's because they were uh, uh, ritually clean, unclean, weren't they? Because they'd come from a Gentile house. Therefore, they were unclean before God. Verse 47, then those in the house shall wash their clothes. All right. Now, I've left a question mark there. That's not because I can't find something to tie in there. I think there is an answer to that, but we're going to have a look at that answer a bit later. And then finally, verse 49 of Leviticus 14 tells us uh, that the, the house had to be cleansed with scarlet. And we've already looked at that, how that Rahab's house was bound with a scarlet line in the win window. So for all intents and purposes, all of Jericho was unclean and plagued with leprosy, and that had to be brought down. The only bit that wasn't was, of course, Rahab's house, um, which had been bound with a scarlet line. So it had been cleansed with scarlet to, to free it from leprosy. So when we look through chapter seven, if it didn't stand out clearly enough, then um, I'll tell you now, but that whole of chapter six is full of the word seven or seventh. OK, and uh, interestingly enough, 14 times uh, seven is mentioned. So 14 as well is a multiple of seven, isn't it? So you've got all these sevens, 14 of them and 14 is a multiple of seven. And if you want another one as well to add in there, it's uh, it's not doesn't hit you straight away, but. Verse 26 of chapter six, uh, where it says Joshua and Joshua adjured them. That word adjured there means to seven. It means um, it, it means to keep, you know, to put extra emphasis on it. So he said, I, you know, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. So sort of seven times to emphasize it. So this whole chapter then is about sevens. Now, what do we know about seven? Well, um, the, the whole of the Jewish calendar rotates around the number seven, doesn't it? Seven is the number of creation. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the Israelites going into the promised land, it's a new beginning. It's a new start, a new chapter in, in, in their lives. And, and what's going to happen is they're going to start fresh. So it's a creation. It, seven represents completion. Uh, it represents the Sabbath and it represents the, the rest. And if you look in uh, Hebrews chapter four, Joshua is very much tied in with this idea of providing a rest for his people. It actually tells us, doesn't it? It says something like, you know, if Joshua couldn't provide a rest for his people, then there is a rest still to come, meaning J Jesus was going to take over that mantle of Joshua. And although Joshua provided a temporary rest, 
Jesus was going to provide the rest, the greater rest. So it's got all these connotations, seven. And we know that the holy days and the feast revolved around the number seven, don't we? So at the end of seven days, there was a Sabbath, there was a week. Um, and then when you get seven times seven weeks, then that was Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And then at the end of seven years, there was a year of release. And then when you multiply that up seven times seven years, then you've got the year of Jubilee. And that's what I think is interesting about this chapter here is that you've got this multiplication of sevens and the highest you can go for multiplying these sevens out when it comes to the Jewish feast is the year of Jubilee. And I think that all this chapter here and what's happening here is pointing to this year of Jubilee. And what's interesting, uh, when you look up Smith's Dict Bible Dictionary, um, Jubel or, or Jubilee, Yobel, I'm not sure how you pronounce that in Hebrew, what it actually means is the joyful shout or clangor of trumpets by which the year of Jubilee was announced. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? So by shouting and uh, blowing trumpets, that's how the Jews used to bring in the year of Jubilee. And what are they doing here at Jericho? Well, they're shouting and they're blowing their trumpets. So we can automatically see there, there's this connection with the sevens, with the shouting, with the trumpets being blown, that this all points to the idea that this is a year of Jubilee. Now, we often think that the year of Jubilee is at the end, don't we? You know, at the end of the seven times seven years, that's the year of Jubilee. But the year of Jubilee is also the start. It's the start of another period, isn't it? of Israel's history. So it's where everything gets released, everything is free, and it's a new start, a new creation for everyone. And that's what's happening when Joshua now going into the land, a promised land, and what he's doing is he's freeing up the land. Um, now, if you turn to Joshua chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5, let's just work through there because there's some the words that stand out here. And the seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets. Um, now, that word trumpet there is shofar. And we often refer to the ram's horn, don't we, as the shofar. And, and sometimes when you say shofar, people automatically think ram's horns. And that's probably why in the picture books of Joshua, you see them all holding these ram's horns. Um, well, shofar actually means it a clear sound. Um, now, it's likely that they probably did have ram's horns, but they could have also had the silver horns that were made for the year of Jubilee. Um, but it's only, <clears throat> but it's here, it's just translated as trumpet. Ram's horns there, uh, and the ram's horns. Um, now it's only in Joshua that the, the actual word is Yobel, which is Jubilee or Jubile um, in the AV. Um, and it's only in Joshua where they actually translate that word as ram's horns. Everywhere else it's translated as jubilee. And the yoga there means a continuous blast. Then we've got, uh, after that, in verse 5, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And that word there is teruah, uh, which means acclamation of joy or rejoicing. Uh, it's also translated elsewhere as jubilee. So you can see how all these words that are being used in Joshua here 
point towards Jubilee. And then it says <clears throat> that after the, uh, the walls of the city shall fall down flat and the people shall ascend up. So the people shall pass over, pass into the land. Now, where does this all sort of tie together? Well, if you go to the chapter in Leviticus 25, which is about the Jubilee, <clears throat> and you read verses 9 and 10 there, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> the language is very similar. Just say, excuse me a minute. <clears throat> Verse 9, it says, the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound. Well, when you translate that, it means the clear sound of the joyful shout to pass over, to pass over the land or pass through the land. <clears throat> Verse 10 there is to proclaim liberty it shall be a jubilee. So you can see how these two ideas come together, that when Joshua is told that at the end of the seven, seventh day, and they've gone round seven times, that they had to shout loud, a joyful shout to the Lord and blow their trumpets, because the message was going to pass through Jericho um, and pass through the land that the Israelites were here. And this was an idea of proclaiming liberty to that country. <clears throat> now, if you go to Isaiah chapter 61. <clears throat> Isaiah 61, we have a uh, similar language here. And this is the passage that Jesus picks up in Luke chapter 4. Where, if you remember, after Jesus had been baptized, after he'd been into the wilderness, a bit like Joshua, baptism, wilderness journey, he now goes into the tabernacle and um, the synagogue, sorry, <clears throat> and he quotes this passage of scripture. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me. So. The Lord has chosen me, magnified me, like we were talking about with jo Joshua. God had chosen, magnified Joshua to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Rahab was a captive and he was going to free her. And the opening of the prison and to them that are bound. And verse two, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I don't know what the acceptable year of the Lord is. OK, it doesn't sort of reference it anywhere else apart from where it's quoted from. But I would suggest that the acceptable year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee, because in Jubilee, <clears throat> what happens? Well, you get rest for the land, a release of debts. You get the reversion of landed property. And there's the freedom of servants and slaves. So as Joshua now was proclaiming the year of Jubilee to the land of Canaan, that all these things would happen. So Jesus, when he walked into the synagogue, he was proclaiming to the people that the year of Jubilee is coming. And I'm going to be the instrument that God is using to bring that in, just like Joshua is the instrument of God to bring in the release of those who were in uh, Canaan. <clears throat> so let's turn back to uh, Joshua chapter six then. 
Joshua 6. And it's verse, uh, verse 20. <clears throat> so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they took the city now what's interesting about that verse <clears throat> well what's interesting about that verse is the word flat fell down flat now when you look at what that means it means it fell down under itself bullinger um, he translates it as that under itself or from below or beneath so it seems to suggest then that the walls fell down from underneath. They went down. They didn't topple out. They didn't sort of go from the top or they, they went from underneath. OK, now, when we have a look at these slides, this is a picture of Jericho on the left. That's modern day Jericho. That's what it looks like now. It's just basically a hill. Um, and on the right there, there's an artist's impression of what Jericho could have looked like and that's probably likely to be the case there's two walls there there's the upper city and the lower city and it's likely that Rahab lived in one of those houses that joined onto the wall in the lower city because um, her window obviously went out to outside because that's where she released the the spies to didn't she and we're not 100% sure that all the walls fell down we, we we sort of think that all the walls fell down but not necessarily um, all it needed was just enough of the walls to fall down so that the people of Israel could get in. We, I, 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 when I was young, I always was under the impression that all the walls fell down in Jericho and that's what killed everybody. And I don't think that's the case because it tells us that the Israelites then went into the city and destroyed everyone, which seems to be logical because that's what the spies told Rahab. They said, whatever happens, don't come out of your house. Well, why would they say that if everyone had been killed by the walls except for Rahab? And the idea there is that if she'd have come out of her house with her family, then they'd have probably got killed by the Israelites as well, because they'd have thought that they were just an inhabitant of Jericho. So, but what's interesting here is, is this here, this mound of, of bricks here, because it tells us that when the walls fell down flat, that the children of Israel went straight up, they went up. Uh, and, and, and it's almost like there's a ramp created. Now, you may think, well, that's only a picture. Well, let's have a look at some of the diagrams of Jericho. And these are taken from archaeological um, uh, plans and everything. And we have here the, the upper wall, the lower wall. And on here we have this earthen embankment. OK, and underneath here, it's, there's probably rock under here. But Jericho is what's known as a tell. And a tell is where there's several layers of strata where cities have been built on top of the ruins of old cities. So you'd have a city get destroyed or flattened maybe by an earthquake. And then th th another civilization or another group of people come and then build on top of it and they'll keep building on top of it. So 
already Jericho was unstable in its foundations because it was made up of lots of layers of rubble. But then in order to, to, to put these inner and outer wall, they then filled this with earth. And we know that earth is not stable. It's not a stable substance. So these are, these are diagrams here from the original um, archaeological dig by Kathleen Kenyon when she went. And this is a side view. So you've got the lower wall here. OK, and this would have probably gone up something like this. And then you would have had the upper wall up, up here somewhere. And then you would have had in the middle, of, it's all this rubble uh, and earth. And these bricks here, these are bricks that came from these walls. So whatever happened, these walls here and these walls here fell, they'd have rolled down here and they'd have created this sort of natural causeway where the Israelites could have gone up through the wall and eventually into the city in order to, to um, uh, destroy the people in Jericho. And I just think that's interesting because what could have caused the walls to fall down? Well, maybe if it was an earthquake that stopped the water, then that same earthquake could have, may well have um, undermined the foundations of Jericho. It could have caused splits, cracks, who knows what. But then after earthquakes, there are normally tremors, aren't they? And it could well be that an earthquake maybe then brought down the, world, the walls of Jericho. Uh, I think that's it. Let's go back to uh, Joshua chapter six then, and let's see then what happens to Rahab and her family. Um, verse 23, and the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had and they brought out all her kindred, and that's, that's the word plural, families, all her families, and left them without the camp of Israel. So as we said, because they were um, unclean, they couldn't go straight into the camp of Israel. But what's interesting is there, that phrase there, left them without the camp of Israel, is the same phrase that was used in chapter four, and verse eight, where it said that they laid the stones down. So in effect, they'd taken Rahab and her family down and left her outside the camp, or it, symbolically, they had laid them down. Now, what needed then to be happened was that they needed to be raised back up again. And eventually, Joshua would have brought Rahab and her family into the camp of Israel. So he would have raised them up into the camp of Israel and then they would become part of the nation of Israel. So just like those stones that had been washed and baptized in the waters of Jordan, they had been brought out, laid down, and then Joshua came and raised them up. So it was with Rahab and her family. They'd been brought out of Jericho and they had been raised up into the family of the nation of Israel. And what's more with Rahab is this, is that we know that she married uh, an Israelite, don't we? Uh, why do we know that? Because it tells us in Matthew chapter one again, in the genealogy of Christ, it tells us that she married a man called Salmon. Okay, now what's interesting about Salmon? Well, what's interesting about him is that not only is he from the tribe of Judah, 
which means that then she becomes then in, in the genealogy of Christ. But his name means garment. And, and that's, that's amazing, isn't it? Is that she's saved and then she's married to the garment, the covering. Just like we are saved into the Lord Jesus Christ and we are taken into his covering, his garment, we become covered. And therefore, when we have this leprous house and it says uh, those in the house shall wash their clothes. That's exactly what Rahab has done. She has washed her clothes in Joshua or in the Saviour and she has taken on a new garment in Salmon. Uh, and therefore Salmon now covers her just like the Lord Jesus now covers us. So she is the first fruit, the first fruit of Jericho. She's the firstborn of those that came out of Jericho. Now, um, how are we doing for time? We're going to get on to Acad. Let me just check. Well, we've got we've got a few minutes. So uh, I want to just quickly whiz into chapter seven. All right. So let's let's turn to chapter seven. And we've got this account of Achan. Now, there's a bit of an irony here, because whereas chapter six was all about seven, chapter seven is all about six. OK. Um, and, and we know what six is. Six is the number uh, of man, isn't it? Um, interestingly enough, in chapter seven, it's the only place in the whole of Joshua where we get any recorded deaths of Israelites. OK, so the rest of Joshua is all about Joshua's salvation and the, the destroying of the enemy. But chapter seven is all about death within the Israelite camp. How many people die? Thirty six. Six sixes. Thirty six. So it's, it's all about the number six. Achan, who was the man that committed the sin or certainly the leader of the people that committed the sin, he has six opportunities to repent and he doesn't take any of them, uh, uh, which results um, in his death. So what happens in this chapter? Why, why does it all go wrong if it's all about Joshua? You know, J Joshua, surely Joshua can't fail. He's, he's the type of Jesus, isn't he? Well, maybe I think chapter seven is telling us, well, what happens if the saviour did fail? What happens if Joshua did fail in his duty? What happens if Jesus failed in the duty that God gave to him? What would that result in? Well, what it would result in is rebellion and death. If Jesus had not done what he had done and acted as our saviour, and died and was raised to life, then our life would just be full of rebellion, deceit, and ultimately death. And I think that's what this chapter is trying to tell us. Now, was Joshua involved in any of this? I said earlier, didn't I, that Joshua never let, lost a battle. All the, all the battles that Joshua fought in, he didn't lose. Whereas they lost this battle, didn't they, Tei? Well, was Joshua with them? The record doesn't actually tell us that. In verse three, it says that um, um, after, after Jericho had happened, Joshua sent men to look at, to go to Ai. Okay, so he's following the same pattern. 
the people come back in verse three. Oh, you know, let, let not all the people go up, but let only two or three thousand men go up and smite AI um, and not make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few. So in their arrogance, in the fact that they've just won this battle against Jericho, which actually they didn't really do. God did it all. They come back arrogant now thinking, well, AI is going to be a pushover. We don't need to do anything here. We can just send a couple of thousand people. You stay here, um, you know, and we'll go and do the we'll, we'll go and do the job. OK, and there's no indication here that Joshua goes with them. And I don't think he does. So, again, there's this type here, isn't it? That if we don't if we're not with Jesus and Jesus isn't with us in our battles, then we can only fail. We will not win unless we have Jesus with us in our battles. Uh, and as a result of it, AI win the battle and they they pursue the Israelites. And it says that 36 men, whether that, you know, how, how correct that is, I don't know. 36 men die. But as a result of it, Joshua in verse six there, he rends his clothes and he falls to the earth upon his face before the ark and the Lord until eventide. And this is the lowest point, isn't it, of Joshua's um, point in, in the story, in the whole of Joshua. This is the lowest that Joshua gets. And it reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, just before he's about to go to the cross. Who do you know, he sees his friends falling asleep, gi giving up, doesn't he? Um, and, you know, and he must have thought, you know, why, why can't they watch with, you know, do they not understand what I'm going through here? And what happens, Jesus sends an angel, uh, God sends an angel, doesn't he, to Jesus to strengthen him and give him that resolve to go through. And that's exactly what God does here. Verse 10, he, he says to Joshua, look, get up. You know, what, what are you lying on your face for? Israel has sinned and you need to now go and sort this out, Joshua. And he instructed Joshua and he said, right, what you need to do is you've got to find the iniquity in the camp. OK, because if it stays there, then it will spread. And that's the same in our lives. Yeah. Is that if there is something bad in our lives or there's evil in our lives or there's something that we do on a regular basis that is bad for us, we need to stop it. Because if we don't stop it, it just gets easier and easier to do it spreads, it affects other people that are around us. Because if we're doing it, you can guarantee that other people will see us doing it and they will think, well, it's okay to do. If they're doing it, I'll do it as well. So God says, you're not going any further until you resolve this issue. And there are sometimes in our lives or in our ecclesial lives for, for the adults that we get given a problem and it will not go away until we have resolved it. And Joshua here has to resolve this. Uh, and God says to him, what you need to do is you need to go to all the tribes and you draw lots and you, you pull out the tribe. And then from that tribe, you pull out the, the clan. Then from that clan, you pull out the family. From that family, you pull out the person and you draw lots until you get to the person who's done it. And this happens six times. OK, so let's just have a look uh, at when Achan could have repented. Well, first of all, Achan finds out um, that Joshua is going to do this. So um, the, on the evening, 
on the evening in verse uh, 14, it tells us, uh, in, on the next morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families. Thereof, the family which the Lord shall take shall come by household, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. So Joshua tells them what he's going to do. So that was the time then for Achan to own up and say, sorry, it was, I did it. Okay, Let, let's just stop sharing that. I, I did it, but he doesn't. So the next morning, verse 16, Joshua gets up early in the morning. Okay, having had a night now to think about it, Achan could have thought, mm, I'm taking a risk here. I'm, I'm thinking that God's not going to find me out. So he could have repented first thing in the morning. So that was the second time he could have repented, but he didn't. Then on, the third time is when the, the tribe of Judah was chosen. OK, right. It's getting a bit close now. Now I'll repent. He doesn't. Uh, verse 17, then the family of the Tsarites are taken. He must start to be worrying now, Achan, that it's getting closer. Close. So he could have repented then. Then after that, the family of Zabdi was taken even closer. He could have repented then. And then finally, verse 18, and he brought his house, hold man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And even at that point, he could have then said, hands up, I'm really sorry, I, you know, I repent. But he doesn't, does it? Because it's verse 19 where Joshua has to get him to repent and he says my son give I pray thee glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession look look Achan own up to it you you you, you know you, you can't fool God give him glory and eventually Achan says I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and thus and thus I have done and look at verse 21 there it takes us right back to Adam and Eve doesn't it I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid it in the earth. And you've got all those three things from Adam and Eve, haven't you? Saw, coveted, took, and the earth. They went back to the dust of the earth. Um, but through all of that, there's no repentance. He admits to doing it, but he never says sorry. And as a result of that, him and his family and his possessions are all brought together and it's a sad story really isn't it because they all get stoned and then they get burnt and then it says in verse 26 and they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day and so we have this vision don't we that in the background you've got Jericho this mound of stones that is smoking because it's been burnt and it's been destroyed and now you've got this little pile of stones, which represents Achan and his family. And you've got those two um, testaments, really, to what sin is all about. It's about death. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it, they've been burnt, they've been destroyed, and they're there as a testament to those in the future. And you have this, uh, this crossing over, don't you? You had Achan, who was from Judah, the kingly tribe in, in Israel, who wanted Babylon. And then you had uh, Rahab, who was in Jericho, or you know, Babylon, symbolically Babylon, who wanted to be in Israel. 
and Achan was destroyed because he wanted Babylon and Rahab was saved because she wanted um, Israel. And I suppose the lesson is, is that, well, what do we want in our lives? Do we want to be part of Jesus's family and be covered by him and be part of his victory over sin and death? Or would we prefer to be like Achan, where we just want what the world has to offer and our life is full of rebellion and uh, of deceit and eventually it will end up uh, leading to death? So thank you.